0: Hey Satan, you ready for a close up because we are. <laughs> we've gotten all the way down here to you and it is high time we got a good look at exactly who it is that sits in the center of the universe, in the center of the world, in the center of the ice sheet cockatice. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, apparently a podcast in which we walk all the way to Satan. We're actually going to walk a lot farther than Satan, but hey, he's our huge giant end to our first canticle inferno. We're at Canto 34, lines 28 through 45. This is my English translation. Translation, you can find it on my website, Mark Scarborough, not Scarborough, but Scarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can find it there. In fact, you can print it out. And if you'd like to make notes on it for this podcast, you certainly can. You're welcome also to drop comments and notes there as comments on the page. That would be pretty fantastic. But without much further ado, we might as well just walk right on up and take a close look at this great figure from Christian theology. Canto 34 of Inferno, lines 28 through 45. The emperor of the kingdom of sorrow was stuck in the ice to the middle of his chest, I would appear bigger next to a giant than a giant would stand beside one of his arms. See how enormous this whole place must be for one part like that to fit into it? If he was once as beautiful as he now is beastly, who dared to raise his eyebrow to his maker, he may well be the source of all woe. Oh, how grand, the sheer marvel I felt when I saw the three faces on his head, one in the front, a vermilion red, and the other two were set so that one was over each of his shoulders, with all of them fused together at the top of his head. The one on the right was a whitish yellow, and the one on the left was much darker, sort of like the people who live beyond the cataracts of the Nile. Let's stop there. That's our first up-close look at Satan. We've gotten so far down onto the ice sheet that we can now see him. <laughs> There's a problem with that. I'll talk about that when we get there. A problem with actually picking out the details of his faces. As you can tell, he's got three faces. We want to talk about that. They're three different colors. We want to talk a lot about that. And we want to talk about a little bit of heresy that sits in the middle of this passage. So we've come this far. Let's just get right to it. First, we should say that Satan does have three faces. And without making reference to this passage that I just read you, we have to turn away from it and think about the mosaics in the baptistry of of the cathedral in Florence. These are mosaics that would have been being completed during Dante's lifetime. In these mosaics, the figure of Satan doesn't actually have three heads. The figure of Satan does have one head, one face, but out of each of his dog-like, horse-like ears, there's a serpent sticking out of each one with its head forward. So there are kind of three faces in that mosaic, there is also a little bit of a problem. Those mosaics were completed around 1330. Dante has been on the run since the early 1300s and dies in 1321. Did Dante see this figure of Satan in the baptistry? A little difficult to pinpoint. Some art historians believe that the mosaic of Satan would not have been finished by the time Dante was banished from Florence. Others say he's getting this three-faced Satan right from those mosaics. I tend to think it doesn't matter. Here's why. Because ultimately, we are dealing with an infernal or hellish inversion of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the central tenet of Christian theology. And because we're dealing with a Trinitarian Satan, it seems to me his three faces are much better connected to Christian theology than to mosaics that may or may not have been in place during Dante's lifetime. Notice that the passage starts, the emperor of the kingdom of sorrow was stuck in the ice up to the middle of his chest. We talked about this two episodes ago, that you can't say the devil made me do it in Dante's world because the devil is sunk in the ice sheet. Satan is here up to the middle of his chest. We're going to find out about his legs later on. But right now, up to the middle of his chest in the ice sheet of cocatus. Dante is at some pains for us to understand that this is the emperor. This then must be a very ineffective emperor because this emperor can't move frozen in an ice sheet. It was it'd be as if we took some great ruler and stuck him in a glacier and just left them there and said, good luck, This emperor can't rule much. In fact, one of the things that's so interesting about Dante's vision of Satan is that this emperor has no control over his kingdom frozen in this ice sheet. Because, as you know, the final answer for Dante is this is not his kingdom. The whole thing, even down to the center of the earth, is God's. But that discussion has to wait all the way to Paradiso before we can touch it. For now, let us just say the irony of the emperor phrase used here for Satan is thick, because what could he possibly affect here frozen in an ice sheet? We seem to get a size description of him. I would appear bigger next to a giant than a giant would stand beside one of his arms. Now, let me tell you that this has caused a great deal of commentary to erupt. This is the kind of thing that Dantistas love to figure out. There is a general consensus that Dante is talking about the giants. Remember them that lined the pit of Cocytus Like Nimrod, we knew there that those giants were about 70 feet tall. Therefore, many Dantistas have theorized, given that those giants would be a about 70 feet tall, that Satan then, based on this equivalency, must be somewhere near 800 feet tall, maybe even up to 1,300 feet tall. Now, let's just stop and think for a second. 800 feet tall. (laughs) If we're looking at 800 feet of him, we're looking, oh, essentially at a 40-story building. 1,300 feet tall. Wow, we're looking way up. 70, 80-floor building. Like, looking at the top of the World Trade Centers. I guess they were a little higher than this. But still, like, looking way up at the top of them. You know that there's a problem here. There is no way, then, if the pilgrim had to look that far up that he could pick out any details of the faces of Satan. There's just no way. I mean, the, the faces would be way too far away to make sense of them. So we're not dealing with realistic literature. And also, let's say, I don't see anything here that says that this passage refers to the giants who go around Cacatus. Maybe it does. Those are the giants we saw in Inferno, but this might not be an exact reference back to them. So it's hard to actually know how big Satan is, except to say he's enormous, and we must then follow that out with a second deduction. The center of the earth is hollow with this big thing. Let's pretend. Let's go all the way out and say it's these thirteen hundred feet tall. Let's let's just jump out to the biggest possible measurement we can imagine and say, okay, here we are. We got this thirteen hundred foot tall. What is that? About four hundred meters. We have this about four hundred meter tall thing. I mean, come on, the the center hall of the kingdom of hell must be giant. The ceiling has got to be way up there. Think about what this means in terms of symbolism. The center of the earth is hollow, a giant open chamber. But then again, we're not talking a realistic poem, right? We're not going to hold this to the tenets of Turgenev social realism, are we? No, probably not. Nonetheless, Just think about the symbolism that that center of the earth is an open, wide, hollow space. If he was once as beautiful as he now is beastly, who dared to raise his eyebrow to his maker, he will be the source of all woe. We're going to talk about this in the next episode of this podcast. But this is a referential notion that Satan was once the highest of the seraphim, the angels who encircle the throne of God and fell, Lucifer, fell from that place. We're going to talk more about that in the next episode of this podcast. Let's just say that we're hearing... uh, a ringing Christian theological idea here that Satan was the highest of the archangels or the seraphim, it depends on which theologian you talk to, who fell, who tried to overtake God, who tried to disobey God, something like that, and fell, was then incredibly beautiful, but now is incredibly ugly. Notice that what Dante says about his rebellion is dared to raise an eyebrow. That's really something, right? That's not just raise a fist or raise a gun or a sword. I mean, in Milton, when Satan is doing his rebellion, Satan is much more forceful, a military commander in Paradise Lost. This is just a guy ooh, looked at God, and a guy, an angel, okay, an angel who looked at God and went eh, with the eyebrow, and that was it. That was enough to get him thrown here into the center of the ice sheet at the center of the universe. What had been fear for Dante has turned into marvel, and I think that this is important. Remember in our last passage, when he first sees this windmill on the horizon that we now know is Satan, when he first sees this thing, he's so afraid he hides behind Virgil. But now that fear is morphing into Marvel. And I think this goes back really importantly to that last passage. Remember that last address to the reader? I wasn't dead, but I wasn't alive. And I don't have the words because there aren't enough words. And I linked all that up to the poetics of finding a language to do this. I think this is the language I was always thinking of this passage. It's the language of Marvel not the language of fear. From now on in comedy, the language of wonder will become the language that the poet must develop on his course up Mount Purgatory and then on up into the heavens in Paradiso. And the language of wonder or the language of Marvel is very different from the language of fear. The language of fear is at its core an emotional landscape, and the language of Marvel is at its core an emotional landscape. But very different emotional landscapes and very different ways to use language. One, to provoke terror, the other to provoke what we will endlessly talk about when we get into Purgatorio and Paradiso, the notion of awe, A-W-E in English, the notion of wonder as the prime, central, linguistic good, awe as the way linguistically you can express the divine. Oh, man, so much more of that ahead. But when I told you back in that address to the reader that I thought that there was a shift in language that was starting to happen here, I was thinking of this. How we change from a moment of terror, fear, hiding behind Virgil, to this grand marvel staring at the faces of Satan. He should be the most afraid ever right here, staring at the faces of Satan. But instead, we see the dawn of wonder. And now for the heresy in this passage. Let me read you the three lines. If he, Satan, was once as beautiful as he now is beastly, who dared to raise his eyebrow to his maker, he may well be the source of all woe. Oh, be very careful, Dante. You can't make Satan the source of anything without starting to get very close to an heretical notion of evil. That is that Satan somehow emanates evil, which would mean that evil is not a choice. And if Satan can emanated. That means he can create something, which gets him very close to being a creator, which gets us very close to dualism, which is a Christian heresy. This passage isn't quite heretical, but man, it rides right up. On the line. How can Satan be the source of much of anything if he's locked in an ice sheet? Maybe the source of all woe, as in he tempted Eve and Adam and they fell in the Garden of Eden. Okay, we'll give it that. But this seems bigger. It seems more ringing. It seems more, to use a philosophical word, more ontological than historical, the source of all woe, and because it has that little bit of edge about being ontology, just that little edge right there, it's just edging up close to heresy. Satan is not the source of anything. Dante's going to have to back off this very fast, and he will back off of it, but we got to wait for Purgatorio for that to happen. Those three faces are three different colors. So one color is this vermilion color. The one that faces the pilgrim is vermilion. Then there's another face over the right shoulder that is a whitish yellow. Some translators translate that as white and yellow or pale yellow. Some translate it as yellowish white, uh, jaundiced white. It's a little bit murky in the text. I chose whitish yellow, but you should know there's kind of a white yellow continuum going on in that face over the right shoulder. And then the left shoulder is described as darker than the people who live beyond the cataracts of the Nile. The reference here is to deep brown or black, a dark, dark color. What do these three colors mean? We know that Dante is in love with allegory. We know he's in love with a religious symbolism. He's got to mean something. He can't just pick red, (laughs) yellowish white, or whitish yellow, and dark brown or black or maybe dark purple. He can't just pick these colors as, uh, I don't know, just out of the blue. The early commentators all think that these are perversions of the three colors of the Trinity. That is, love, love power and knowledge, love, the um, expression of Jesus, power, the expression of God the Father in the Trinity, and knowledge, the expression of the Holy Spirit that infuses people with the knowledge of God. And the early commentators see this as a Trinitarian infernal inversion of the colors associated with the Trinity. Others have seen this as anger, impotence, and ignorance. Some commentators have seen this as the colors of the three peoples of the earth. I don't know that Dante knows that there's ways other writers talk about the Three colors of humans on the planet. It does say darker, like that people who live beyond the cataracts of the Nile. So it does connect it to people. So there may be some textual basis for saying this has something to do with some kind of racial stereotyping in Dante's day. That could be. Some commentators connect these colors to the gate of hell. Remember? On the gate of hell, there are three different motivations for building hell, justice, power, and love. Justice is moved to use the eternal potency of God and the love that spins the universe to create the gates of hell. So these three faces are a reference back to the gate of hell. Others see these three colors as a reference to Saint Ambrose's commentary on the Gospels. And it's a kind of common interpretation these days. And let me explain it to you. It's kind of an interesting uh, twist on all of this. And it does seem related. So in the Gospel of Luke, in the 17th chapter, at the 6th verse, Jesus says to his disciples, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, and mustard seeds are really, really tiny, then you can say to a mulberry tree be plucked up by the roots, and thrown into the sea. You could make this happen with just this tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of faith. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, well, I guess earlier in the New Testament, but later in the story of Jesus' life in Matthew, at chapter 17, verse 20, this same idea of mustard seeds is used to faith as not moving mulberries, but moving whole mountains, if you had the faith like a mustard seed. Okay, so Ambrose gets a hold of this, And he identifies this mulberry tree that you're going to pluck up and throw out. He identifies it with Satan. And he claims, Ambrose claims, St. Ambrose, that this is an allegory for Satan. And this is the passage from Ambrose. For the fruit of this tree is white when in flower, then turns red when formed, and black when mature." So the devil, deprived by his transgression of the white flower and the red power of his angelic nature, bristled with the black odor of sin. This idea, then, is supposedly that Dante knows of this. Uh, reference in St. Ambrose, and he's picking it up here and using it for the faces of Satan. I have to tell you that I find that a little bit of a stretch, although it's a really common argument used nowadays. I also can tell you that when we get into Purgatorio and when we get to the very gates of Purgatory itself in Purgatorio nine, we come to these, the, the very gates that Dante has to climb. There are three steps and. Guess what their colors are? Well, if you said their colors are red, a kind of whitish yellow or alabaster, which is white with yellow running through it, and then a dark purple, you'd have hit it right. You'd say the the steps up to the very gate of purgatory itself that Dante is going to have to climb I, it, it's got to be related. It's it too close to this, to the faces of Satan and the steps up to the gate of Purgatory in Purgatorio nine. And yes, listen to that. It's going to take us nine cantos just to get to the gate of Purgatory. <laughs> In the purgatorio, don't run away from me. Don't despair. But (laughs) that's the way it goes. I can't help but see the colors related here in some way. But again, I think the most important thing that we can take away from this is there's clearly a trinitarian conception. What the colors mean is extremely open ended. And let me posit this as just a, I don't know what, just a, a thought experiment. What if it doesn't matter? I mean, it does matter. Obviously, Dante is a medieval poet. Obviously, medievals loved allegory. Obviously, the symbolism here is tight. But what if... It's left, without explanation here, rather open-ended so that we can do what we just did. So that we can go through all different kinds of interpretations, reaching forward to Purgatorio, reaching back to St. Ambrose, reaching to the peoples of the earth from certain commentators. What if, in fact, this is the point? There's this old idea, right, that tapestries were developed to be so elaborate— because it gave you something to do while you waited for your royal or courtly audience. You would pay attention to the tapestry, you would see the symbolism of the lady and her unicorn, and you'd sit there thinking it through. What does all this mean as you're waiting finally for your audience with the royal court? Well, what if there's a similar idea here— Not that this is supposed to waste our time or fill our time, but what if Dante is essentially setting us up so that we sit back in our chair and we say, okay, what could all this mean, particularly coming right after the seventh address to the reader? Remember, Dante wants a reader who is actively involved in both the emotion and interpretation of his poem. Maybe this is our clue. Maybe this is, you know, one of those moments where we sit back and we say, well, hey, what does all this mean? And obviously, it can't just mean anything. And, of course, it's better to tie it historically to Ambrose or the Gospels or Purgatorio or some way that we can ground it. And yet, at the same time, maybe Satan's three faces are left open ended in their interpretation just so that we can uh, I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to play this game just so that we can have this discussion. Just so I can advance a theory and you can go, oh, no, I think it's this. And then I can go, oh, well, okay, but maybe it's this. And then you can go, uh, maybe that's the point. Maybe the point of the open-endedness is to let the poem expand even beyond Satan. To let the poem's interpretation be bigger than the emperor of the kingdom of sorrow well we've gotten really close to satan we can see his faces but we don't see them quite clearly enough there's more going on with those faces we got to get a little closer and then finally we're gonna have to take a hold of the fur on his hip so get ready We're getting closer and closer to the emperor of the kingdom of sorrow. To get there, you've got to subscribe to this podcast. Read it, please. Walk on right up to Satan's hip. I'm Mark Scarborough. Brace yourself. We're getting closer.